Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show on WILK News Radio, 103.1 FM, 910, 980 AM, or anywhere on the Odyssey app. Just go to your app store, Google Play Store, download the app for free. Favorite WILK, you got us. You can also find us wherever you get your favorite podcast. Just search the Rob O'Donnell Show. We're in 36 different platforms for podcasts. Wherever you get yours from, I'm sure you could find us. Download it to your inbox each day. Again, you got us. It's 42 degrees and cloudy now at 5.09 here at the station. Uh, it's time for Do I Have a Case with attorney Keith Figure to the Figure Law Group. Keith, thanks for joining us on this Friday. My pleasure, Rob. <laughs> uh, we got some uh, doozy of cases today. Uh, let's start off. Uh, I was injured at work, and my boss is giving me two options. File a workman's compensation claim and collect two-thirds of my pay and submit all my medical bills via that program, or they will continue to pay me my full salary and my bills that arise. Is this legal? Are there pros and cons to either? All right, so this is a loaded question. So I think it's first important to discuss how benefits are calculated. Um, in Pennsylvania, uh, the most common is because I believe a lot of employees are hourly, um, and assuming that the employee had worked the preceding year prior to the injury, the employer will actually go back those four 13-week periods, take the highest three, and then average that together to what's called an average weekly wage. Now, for the calendar year of 2023, the maximum weekly compensation rate is $1,273 per week, which is based on an average weekly wage of $1,909.50 or, or an annual wage of $99,294. The reason that's important to understand is if the individual earned over that, um, the, the benefits would be capped. And the reason this is important is because I believe the individual the way the question is worded is thinking that he may be entitled to more pay if he takes 100%. That may not be the case. Um, where that may not be the case is if during that preceding year the individual worked a substantial amount of overtime, the average weekly wage may be higher. And you have to also keep in mind that although they take 66 and two thirds of that average weekly wage, um, when the employer is getting paid their salary, there's taxes taken out of that. So just because the employer may be indicating they're going to be paying 100% of salary, it doesn't mean that they're going to be bringing home more than what they would be working under workers' comp. So now aside from that, um, if an insurance company or an employer makes a wage loss payment um, in lieu of compensation, what that means is, say they come to you and say, look, I want to pay you instead of having the insurance company pay you, um, what the court actually looks at is the intent of that payment. Um, if it's an accident, meaning the employee was off and they just merely received another check on payroll, that's not going to amount to an admission and create an acceptance of the claim. However, if the employer specifically says, look, I'm going to pay you in lieu of the workers' compensation benefits, um, that can act as what's called the de facto notice of compensation payable. A notice of compensation payable is what the employer has an obligation to issue, either a notice of compensation payable or a notice of compensation denial within the 21 days of notice of that injury. And this gets to the last part of that question that there are time limitations which can waive the claim if the employee fails to provide notice of that injury or take certain action. So you have to be careful because if the employer is savvy, they can basically entice the employee into a false sense of security. And then if one of those 
periods gets missed, uh, they can end up waiving their claim. So what I would recommend is that if the employee does indeed sustain an injury, you need to report it, that puts the obligation on the employer. It's, an, it's vital that the work injury be formally recognized by the Bureau of Workers' Compensation so that the worker is protected. And once that happens, it would be important for the employee to reach out to experienced counsel to discuss their rights and know what their obligations are. They have to understand that um, in these types of cases, it really doesn't cost the employee anything at that juncture because the only way my fee attaches is if I go to court and I'm ultimately successful. If I can aid that individual into getting his benefits without going to court, he's going to get his benefits free and clear of any attorney's fee, and he may end up returning to work and I never get a fee, which is fine with me um, as long as that individual is being protected. Yeah, one of the things I saw with this case, just from my experience with this, is if down the road, because if you if you declare a workman's comp injury, uh, injury during, through the process, the normal process, and you have to have something, say, 10 years down the road, you have a, a complication or something from that same injury, um, the first way that this is being described, where they'll just take care of your bills and pay you your full salary, you may not be covered for that then, right? Correct, because the claim was never formally accepted, and it goes back to the time limitations. If they fail to act within that time frame, regardless of what prior actions may have been taken, their claim may have been waived. And if you file a formal claim with workman's compensation and go through their insurance and everything like that, how long is that injury covered for down the road? It's basically covered until either the claimant settles the claim or they actually go before a judge and a judge finds that the individual has fully recovered. Otherwise, the claim would go into what's called a suspended status, and that can be there indefinitely. However, again, there are certain time frames in which to either reinstate benefits, and, and it gets very complicated based on the last payment of medical and other issues that might arise. Which is why it's always great to get professional advice in regards to it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right, the next question. Uh, I applied for a promotion at my job, which is part of a national company. During the interview process, my local manager verbally informed me that I was the best qualified candidate, but the corporate... Uh, that corporate has stated the promotion needs to go to someone from an underrepresentative community, and therefore I would not be getting the position. Do I have any recourse? All right, so I believe that most of the listeners, and I'm sure yourself, are familiar with the recent Supreme Court ruling that determined affirmative action violated university admission policies, which was just recently. Um, specifically, in that decision, the court determined that the use of race as a factor in admission uh, decisions at universities was unconstitutional. Um, and of course, that decision has effectively ended the practice of affirmative action in higher education and has sparked a lot of debate and discussion regarding the role of race in, in college admissions. Um, what a lot of listeners probably have not heard is actually a much older case in 2009. Uh, Richie uh, V. Stefano, in which the Supreme Court held in that case that an employer cannot engage in intentional discrimination as a means of avoiding or remedying an unintentional disparate impact. And what that means is that private companies cannot make hiring or promotion decisions based on race, even if their intention is to promote diversity or address past discriminations. In that case, I believe it was New Haven, Connecticut, where they used objective examinations to identify firefighters best qualified for promotion. 
when the results uh, of the exam to fill the vacant lieutenant and captain position showed that white candidates had outperformed minority candidates, the city threw out the results. The court held that the city's actions in discarding the test violated Title VII, which basically says Title VII prohibits intentional acts of employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Now, there are a number of other pending cases. Um, one uh, specifically, I believe, in the District Court in New York, where a group of white employees sued their employer, claiming that the company's affirmative action policy discriminated against them, um, specifically arguing that the policy gave preference to minority candidates, even when they were less qualified. So I believe that with the recent Supreme Court, the prior DiStefano case, that there is a cause of action um, which uh, can be pursued. Of course, these cases are very complicated. And again, you would want to reach out to an attorney right away as I think the individual facts of each case and the actual ability to prove that their decisions were based on certain types of conduct specifically found in these decisions would depend on whether or not a cause of action arises. Mm, great advice there. Uh, and the third question here, I've been in two different stores in our area during the holiday season where active shoplifting had taken place. The second time was with my children. The store made no attempt to prevent these thefts and the suspect fled knocking over a shopper as they exited. I don't believe there was an injury, but do these stores have an obligation to protect shoppers while they're on their property? All right, well, obviously it's understandable that witnessing shoplifting incidents can be unsettling, especially if you're with your children. You do not know if, they are, if the uh, shoplifter is armed, their general state of mind, and whether they will become violent. And fortunately, a lot of stores do not allow their security personnel to be armed, which can leave you and your children vulnerable, especially if the shoplifter is armed. Um, in fact, I'm sure a lot of you recall that not too long ago, the woman that was shot in the Walmart parking lot, when she approached the in individual that was either, I believe, looking in or trying to break into her vehicle at the time. Um, that being said, in general, stores do have a responsibility pro to provide a reasonably safe environment for their customers. The responsibility is covered under what's called premise liability. Um, however, the extent of the responsibility can vary depending on the cir circumstances and, and, and the applicable laws. For instance, in Pennsylvania, business owners have a duty to keep their premises reasonably safe for business invitees. This means they need to inspect the property for any hazards, fix any dangerous conditions, and warn invitees of any potential risks. When it comes to preventing shoplifting, stores typically have loss prevention measures in place, such as security cameras and other issues. And in fact, some uh, stores where maybe in this particular instance actually direct their uh, personnel not to physically confront the shoplifter. However, if a store's action, actions or lack thereof create an unsafe environment that leads to injury, the store may be held liable for damages. For example, if the store failed to address a known hazard, in this instance, if the shoplifting was a regular occurrence, meaning it wasn't the first time it was happening, and other shoppers had been previously injured, the store would have known or should have known of that potential harm to its invitees, which would create a duty of care. And if that duty is breached and it results in an injury, the store could be held liable. So again, if something were to happen like that, and, and again, if there's no injury, uh, you have three parts of every case. You have of course, the insurance or who you can collect from, you have the, the duty of care, whether that's breached and then damages. So in this instance, if there was no injury, 
likely that there's not going to be any case to be pursued. However, if it did result in injury um, and the store uh, knew or should have known that for that uh, potential injury to have occurred and they failed to take the proper action, the store could be out liable. And why it's always great to consult with an attorney that can depose the store and find out if there were prior incidences and such like that to see if there's a case or not. Correct. All right, Keith, uh, again, for the, the listeners out there that want to send in a question for Keith Figured, you could email robert.odonnell at odyssey.com. That's robert.odonnell at odyssey.com. And, Keith, how can the listeners get in touch with you if they have a case that they want to bring to you? They can contact me directly. My uh, direct dial is 570-954-9299. They can also send me an email at Keith at figuredlaw.com, and they can reach me through my website at figuredlaw.com. Always great information, a lot to unpack today. Uh, Keith, you have a really nice extended weekend, hopefully, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. You as well, Rob. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care.